Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White, and yes, that is my real last name. This is the podcast for the client that's never picked up a rod or for the angler that's never wet a line. If you've hired me, this is what you should expect the first time I put a rod in your hand. And this episode is brought to you by Solo Stove, which started off as a simple, unique cooking stove, built strong and working really well, and now is an entire line of products. They come in a variety of sizes. I'm currently using the Titan Camping Stove. I first learned about these from neighbor Patrick, and then neighbor Rob had to buy one. And I've got one, so who's next? Don, Rick, Scotty, Brendan, Jeff? Once you see one of these in action, you have to have one. They're the most amazing fire pits I've ever seen. There's no smoke, there's constant heat, and they're portable. You can watch the vortex of combustion, which would make a great band name, as it burns. It is hypnotizing to watch the efficiency of how wood burns in these stoves. The Titan camping stove fits inside its own pot, which then fits in its carrying case. It runs on rubbish and twigs you can get along the shore, and once you get that fire going, it'll last a good 20 to 25 minutes without having to be refueled. You can feel the heat radiating several feet away. This is the stove for you to heat up your shore lunch in the winter. 
This is for you to warm your hands while you're steelhead fishing. This is to light the shoreline while you wait at dusk for the hatch to start. Be sure to use the link on my website and social media. Your purchases help me out. I apologize in advance for all the social media ads you're going to see, but they want you to know what you're missing out on. You can be the envy of your angling buddies and all your neighbors once it gets cool and fire pit season starts up again. Please go to my website for more information. Now, let's get on with that podcast. If you're just finding this podcast and you just picked up fly fishing, this is the episode for you. If not, if you've been doing this for years, you probably want to skip over this. But this is what I'm going to tell you if you meet me in a parking lot and I put a fly rod in your hand for the first time. This is the Novice Client Podcast. During COVID, a lot of people are picking up fly rods for the first time. So this is what I would cover if you're with me for the first time. This is what we discussed before and after we went online for the first time. Consider this a one-on-one for fly anglers. After this, you want to listen to the podcast titled A Novice Angler Walks Into a Fly Shop, and then you can go on from there. If we're on foot or walking, I always want you to bring a backpack because you're going to bring a bottle of water and you're going to put it down, and you're going to forget about it and have to go back for it. That's just something a novice client would do. Being on time is being five minutes early, and always listen to your guide. But if you're not hiring a guide, someone like me, and you want to know what all this is, and you're intimidated because this is all new to you, I'm going to try and break it down. Some things you should know first. You are responsible for your fly rod at all times, whether you own it or you are using one of mine. Don't walk with the tip down towards the ground. I make a living with my fly rods that I loan out to people, my clients. Please be careful with them. Don't back into trees or power lines. Don't backcast into them. Don't set the hook under a tree. Don't fall with your rod in your hand facing forward. Don't drop the rod or drag the reel across the ground. That's going to damage the reel. Don't step on the fly line. That's going to break it. And a broken fly line will have small fractures and cuts in it, which allows water in it which will degrade your fly line. So please be very careful with my fly rods. If you're casting big flies, if you're putting them in the boat rod storage, whatever you're doing, be careful with rods. It does not take much to break one. So I'm going to start off with the anatomy of a rod. We're going to talk about reels, lines, leaders, flies, some basic first-time casting terminology, how to work the fly, different types of flies, Setting hooks, landing fish, releasing fish, and then troubleshooting. Things that are going to go wrong. It happens to everybody. I always tell my clients, if you're not getting tangled, you're not doing it right. A fly rod is a specialized tool made to bend like a spring. This bend stores potential energy into the rebound of the rod once it recovers. You bend it like a bow, it releases it. Instead of shooting an arrow, you're sending the line. Once it recovers from that cast is when that line goes off. You need to bend that rod in order to throw the line. Imagine jumping on a diving board when the board goes up, not down. It's going to be awkward. You're going to throw off the physics of it. It's the same thing with casting. Casting is just like a diving board. You need to jump down to get the energy in the spring, and then it throws you up. But you only can do it that way. You can't jump on a diving board that's going up. It just doesn't work that way. The energy from that bend, that potential energy, then is released. The energy travels down the rod 
and propels the line. The line moves the leader, the leader delivers your fly. So I say to my clients, you bend the rod, the rod throws the line, line throws the leader, leader throws the fly. If you use too much muscle when casting, you're going to separate the rod pieces or the ferrules. So another thing you need to know is when you're putting your rod together, you need to twist some of the pieces on a multi-piece rod together, put them in at 90 degrees, and then twist them together. There'll be two dots, hopefully, on your rod. Those used to only come on fancy rods. You paid $50 to $70 extra to have two little dots on your male and female ferrule. You put them in 90 degrees, twist them together. Now, if you're casting incorrectly, you're going to be throwing energy incorrectly down that rod, and that's going to end up separating the ferrules. And at some point, your rod tip is going to separate, and probably part of it's going to go in the water. So let's talk about the anatomy of a rod. I'm going to open up the rod that I bought when I graduated high school with my graduation money from my great uncle Harry. If you live in D.C., or visiting D.C., there's the Harold Black Bar on Capitol Hill. It is next to, uh, which market is that? The market on Capitol Hill. I'm blanking on it. But Harry, Uncle Harry has a speakeasy named after him. So this is a rod. If you look at it, the bottom part of it, the terminal section, is called the butt. Now, some of them just end, depending on what you're doing style of fishing, there might be an extension to that for you to grip for casting with two hands. It should be usually just made of rubber or cork, maybe cork and rubber, something synthetic that when you put your rod down for some reason, it's not going to damage the integrity of the rod. The next thing up is going to be probably some sort of screwy looking piece of plastic that goes up and down like this. And then here you have the locking part. So between your butt and the handle, you're going to have what's called a real seat. This one is made out of wood. They can be made out of plastic. They can be made out of carbon fibers. It all depends what the rod is meant to look like and what it's supposed to do. They may be made out of cork for a very light rod. So the real seat is where the reel attaches. And you basically put the foot of the reel up into the cork. There's a little grooved cutout section, and it's universal for all reels and all rods. And then you slide this little O-ring over it, and then you screw the reel. If the screw part goes up towards the cork, it's called an up-locking reel seat. If it screws down towards the butt of the rod, it's down-locking. Most modern rods these days are up-locking. Above that reel seat is the cork grip or the handle. You do not stick your fly in the cork. Now, maybe you want to do that with your rod when you're with the end of the day. Please do not stick any hooks into my corks. That damages the integrity and lessens the value of the rod and may just allow this cork to just fall apart faster. Also, take the plastic off your cork. If I do get a new rod, I will leave the plastic on it and go fishing just so people look at me. Because if you do that, it looks strange. And I know that it looks strange. I just want to get the funny look sometimes. So if you're new to this, if you're a novice, some would call you a rube, you want to take that plastic off. It's not there to protect the cork when you're fishing. It's to protect it in transit. If you don't have cork, it might be made out of some kind of foam or sticky rubber. But generally, it's going to be cork, which is membrane inside of an oak tree. It's lightweight. It's porous. It's going to get dirty. 
You can clean it off with denatured alcohol with microscopic sandpaper, itty bitty sandpaper. You can use a wet towel and some soap to clean it, or you can also use nail polish remover. Right above your cork, and the corks are going to have different shapes based on the rod. Full wells, half wells, cigar, and that's just for the placement of your hand based on the style of fishing that rod was designed for. Some rods right above the cork are going to have a little metal loop. That's called your hook keep. Not all rods have them. A lot of rods don't have them now with the theory that your fly line is going to get caught in them. I find that more a problem not to have a hook keep, especially when we're moving between locations on foot or waiting with clients. You do not string your fly line through the hook keep. Now, people listening to this podcast that have been doing this for years probably laugh at that. They're like, of course not. Well, if you don't know what you're doing the first time you pick up a fly rod, you might be putting your line through it. I've seen it done. Above that, you should have some ink or a sticker or writing underneath the coating on the rod. This one has the make and model, Orvis, silver label. It tells me it's a mid-flex, which means this rod was designed back in the day under a system of flexibilities, and this one was in the middle. It was not a tip flex, which would be known as a faster rod. It was not a full flex, which would be known as a slower rod. This was in the medium action, and it was made in 1999, because I have 99 there. And then above that, it says it's seven feet long. It weighs three ounces, five WT. The WT stands for weight. Five is the line weight that this rod is designed to fit with. Imagine this rod is a shoe and it's a size five shoe. It's made to fit a size five foot. You can always go up in line, but you can't go down in line. You can put your foot into a bigger shoe, but you can't put your foot in a smaller shoe. And then the next piece is my male ferrule, which would then go into the next section. And I'm gonna twist these together. These don't have dots. So what I do is I put it together, I twist it down, and then I look up the rod through the guide to make sure that that first stripping guide is aligned with my reel and where the foot goes under the cork. I'm gonna take my second piece now. Because this is a seven foot rod, I can put it together in my office. Sorry if I'm away from the microphone right now. So now I've got my rod put together, seven feet long, the biggest fish I've ever caught on this was about a 34 to 35 inch bull trout in Idaho. I've caught small fish, I've caught big fish. It was a rod designed for backpacking. You can take this rod absolutely anywhere and it'll catch absolutely anything. I've had this rod for a long time. So now we need to discuss the reel and how you attach a reel to this and how you would set the reel up. So let me grab a reel. And as I mentioned, you've got your stripping guide, which is gonna be the big one. That's going to be their first guide, and then all the way up to the tip-top guide. So if I'm with a client and I refer to the tip of the rod or the butt of the rod, you now know those sections. You have new vocabulary to learn. The reel. The majority of the time, this reel is designed just to hold your line. If you're fishing Tenkara, there's no reel. It's a fixed line attached to the tip of your rod. If you are fishing, this thing just holds your fly line. It's a storage unit. And it has several parts to it. The foot is going to be about three inches long. Mine wobbles. It's 
probably should just solder this. I don't know. I can't really fix it. That foot is what slides up into that gap in the cork and slides on the other end into that ring that you're going to slide up and lock in. Now, I have a handle on this one, which is the part you grab. This one has a rubber nub on it or a paddle. They could just be a little round piece of plastic. It could be wood. It could be carbon fiber, graphite. The line's going to be on this most of the time unless you're pulling line away. And when I say pull line away from the reel, you actually physically take the line and grab it and pull it away from the reel. It does not free spool like a conventional tackle. This line is attached with a brake system in there and you got to give it a tug. So across the circumference from the reel is another knob and that is just a balancer. That is, imagine someone's on a tightrope and you've got the big balancing pole. You got one end and then the other end. So you got the weight of your handle and then you have the counterweight balance. In the middle of the spool, there's going to be a little knob that allows you, it might be a lever, it might be a lob, it might be a pinch. Sometimes you just pull them apart. This is what allows you to separate. This is what allows you to separate the real spool, which holds the line from the actual reel. Keep it clean. There's grit and dirt in this one. I should probably wash it. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Okay, so now you have your paddle, your handle, counterbalance your opening device on the back of your reel it should say the make and model this is old orvis batten kill mid arbor five this is an old one that i picked up when i worked in colorado 15 years ago it's a fantastic reel i use it for six to eight weight lines and let's talk about what you're seeing inside of the reel so the internal parts are a drag system so if you do separate it you're going to see some things that look a little foreign that's the brake system if you have a drag. If not, you have a spring and pawl. There's probably two metal triangles and some plastic circles they're near. If you need to stop your fish, you have to use your hand to slow it down. Friction from your hand. This has a drag system on it. So on the back where I had the names, Bat and Kill, Mid Arbor, there's a dial. Now this one is triangular in shape and form and it hurts my fingers. I never liked it. I prefer more of a dial like on my hatch reel. And that determines the tension of the outgoing line, whether you're pulling the line out by hand or when a fish pulls the line out. You're also going to have backing, probably white. It's nylon. It fills in between the innermost of the spool and your flying line. And what that does is it fills in the gap. So there's a smaller circumference for the inside of the spool. If you've got a larger circle, you get more line off per spool of the arbor, which is what this piece is called, the arbor. Your backing's probably made of nylon. It should be about 100 to 250 feet long, just depending on the size of the reel and what you're fishing for and where. Bigger fish out of the ocean are going to run further. Carp and freshwater are going to run further. Bass and bluegill are not going to run. They're not going to take your line 100 feet downstream. So you don't really need one of these 
with 250 uh, yards of backing for Bluegill. There's going to be a knot between your nylon backing and the end of your fly line. Your fly line is going to be like 90 to 100 feet long. It's going to sit in large circles on here. And when you're fishing, you're pulling line off. When you're done, you reel up, go to another spot. For the majority of the time, you're not really using your reel. You don't need to spend a lot of money on a small reel unless you want to have aesthetics and nice sounds to it because it's mostly a storage device. Once you get into larger rods, 7, 8, 9, 10 weight, bigger fish, bigger water, then you're going to need something with more backing and a strong fly line and a solid drag. Now, the next thing is which side does the handle go on, left hand or right hand retrieve? The majority of people are right-handed, so you will hold the rod in your right hand and manipulate the reel in line with your left hand. That is known as a left-hand retrieve. If you're left-handed, you're going to have the reel on the right side, and you're going to hold the rod cork with your left hand manipulate the reel in the line with your right hand. Some people switch back and forth. They'll cast with one, reel with the other. Back in the day, they always said that your right arm, if you're right-handed, is dominant, so that's the one you should reel with. Well, if my right arm is dominant, it's stronger, that's the one I should be fighting the fish with. My left hand, you don't really need muscle to reel in. It's, it's not that, you know, you're going to reel in fast regardless if you're stronger or not. It's It doesn't increase the rapidity of revolutions to be strong to crank a reel. So your fly line is, this one's bright green, and your line wants to get tangled on everything. So that's just going to happen. It's going to get caught on anything that's sticking out, any piece of backpack, straps, shoelaces, flip-flops, tree branches, twigs, flower parts, grape vines are particularly terrible at grabbing your line. So line's going to get caught in everything. And what you're going to do is you're going to put your reel in, you're going to tighten it with the reel seat, and then you're going to pull line out, double it over so it doubles back on itself. You're going to fold the line and pull that through your guides. So the line itself is plastic, polyvinyl chloride. It has different colors based on where it resides in the water. A bright colored flying line is going to float on the surface. It allows you to see the line and others to see the line in case you're fishing in a crowded place. If it is clear or sort of a neutral color, it may float several feet in between the surface and the bottom. It may just hover two feet, three feet below the surface. If it's dark colored, blacks, browns, dark greens, it's probably going to sink where it's not going to show up as much in darker, deeper water. Sometimes these are floating and they're filled with microscopic glass bubbles. That's what allows them to float. When you want them to sink, you impregnate them with something heavy, tungsten or lead or something else that's dense and will make this line sink down. Lines are also maybe species specific. You may need one for specifically going to the tropics. You may need one for fishing cold water. You may need a line for fishing lakes and streams. You might need a small stream line. You might need a line for a bamboo rod. You might need a line for steelhead or salmon or for giant trevally. Modern lines have gone absolutely insane. When I was a kid, I had one line that did absolutely everything. And nowadays you have one line per rod, per water type, per species. And it's getting a little out of hand. 
the evolution of lines has just gone absolutely crazy. The weight of the line, there's no tensile breaks in strength. It's not 8, 10, 15, 20 pounds. This line will break under a certain amount of stress, but it's not calculated and labeled on the box. These go from, say, 0 to 12 weight, and they get heavier as the number increases. Zero being a very thin, itty-bitty line like a piece of angel hair pasta. Five weight is like a piece of spaghetti. Seven weights like a bucatini, where a 12 weights like rigatoni, if that makes sense to you. It increases in diameter and mass. The larger the number, the more mass this line has. A heavier line with more mass can throw a larger fly, and it can be thrown through the wind more easy because it can cut through that wind. You should have a loop on the back end of your line to connect it to your backing. A fly shop should be able to do all of that for you. There should be a loop on the front end to connect your leader. And that's what I'm gonna discuss next. The leader is a clear piece of monofilament, either handmade or extruded through a machine. This separates the fly line from the fly or the fly line from the fish. It allows for a delicate presentation to be sneaky where they're not seeing the heavy weighted fly line splat on the water. And that is the purpose of it. It can be made by any fly fishing company out there. You've got Bass Pro Shops, Umqua, Cortland, Rio, Scientific Anglers. Everybody has their own. They're all going to tell you they're the strongest, they're the best. The crazy thing is now that they're getting thinner and stronger, which is awesome. Art and I mentioned that in the last podcast. You should have a loop knot to the thickest end of your leader. And the average length of the leader is nine feet. It should correspond about the length of your rod. You should be able to loop to loop connect it. And if you're going to make it yourself, that loop knot is called a perfection loop. And then if you make your leaders like me, you can visually see how they taper. Let's say for this reel, I would go 30 pounds, three feet of 30 pound, three feet of 20 pound, three feet of 10 pound. You'll see it progressively get smaller. There'll be a large blood knot in between the 30 and 20 and the 20 and 10. If it's extruded through a machine, it's going to be tapered naturally, sort of like a car antenna. It's going to be tapered down. You can't visually see where the tensile breaking strength and diameter change unless you have a tool that measures tippet diameters. But each company now has different diameters per strength, so that might not be universal anymore. You can buy them pre-wrapped. You're going to have to undo them. They're going to be looped in a circle with one end wrapped around itself to hold it together. You're going to get your pre-made leaders tangled up when you undo them. The last section of your leader, the thinnest spot is going to be called the tippet, the tip section. So my handmade leader would be the 10 pound section. It's where I would tie the fly to. About every five flies you change, you should change out your tippet. So you are going to have little spools. And if you buy a 4X leader, you're going to have hopefully three, four, five X, you should have one X below your tippet. You should have one X of your tippet and one smaller. 
Let's say you've got a nine foot 4X leader and you wanna make it longer, you can either add more 4X or more 5X to it. And as you cut it down and you might end up at the 3X section, you now need to add, now you need to add maybe a foot of three and 14 inches of 4X. Now, what is an X? Imagine you have got pizza dough in front of you. We're gonna use nylon from a machine as an example. We're gonna pretend it's dough. The first time you roll that dough out, it's 1X. So the, before you even roll the dough out, that lump of dough is 0X. The first time you roll it out with a rolling pin, it's 1X. The second time you roll it, it's 2X. The third time you roll it out, it's a 4X. The fifth time or the fifth you roll it out, it's 5X and so on and so forth. So it decreases in diameter the larger the number. It's inversely proportional. 10X is going to be like spider silk, where 1X is going to be like angel hair pasta. It's going to be tougher. So the bottom section of your leader closest to your flying line is known as the butt. That's going to be the heavy part. That might be 0X on a 4X tippet leader. I hope that's making sense. You should have something like nail clippers or nippers to cut your leaders as you add pieces to it. And you want to keep the leader out of your rod or guides, either when we're walking from spot to spot, when you're putting the rod away in storage, or when you are reeling in a fish. Just try and keep that leader out. Once you get it in the guides, then you got to get it out to make your next cast. And sometimes the knot on the end of your fly line might just be big and clunky and will not want to come out of the guides. So that's a breakdown of what a leader is. Please try to throw away all your pieces that you cut off, stick them in pockets, throw them in garbage cans. I tend to leave what's called a tag end, the piece sticking out after you tie the knot. I usually leave that on on most flies in my leaders. Fish don't care. At least the fish around here. They don't know what leader is. Most of the fish that we encounter have never seen a human before anyway. So that's the rod, the reel, the leader. Let's talk about the flies. So the first time you're coming out with me, I'm going to tie a fly on. This time of year, it's going to be something floating, brightly colored, probably made out of foam. So there's two types of flies, generally speaking. You got a dry fly, you got a wet fly. I'm going to explain what fly we are fishing and why we're fishing that fly. So I'm going to say, listen, look around. Right now, all you hear are cicadas, crickets, specifically bush crickets, and some grasshoppers. If I'm quiet right now in my office, I can hear them through the glass that's closed. It's pretty loud out there right now. So right now, we're going to be throwing things that mimic what might be in and around and those are going to be representative flies versus something that doesn't look like anything found in nature. Call that an impressionistic fly. This time of year, we're doing grasshoppers, crickets, popping bugs, things that are going to float. You can look in spider webs. There's a certain boat we pass when we're walking on shore that's covered in midges every day in the summer. And we point out to the clients, those are the midges. Look down on the water. All those white speckles are their skins from when they shucked last night. And due to that biomass in this body of water is probably why the sunfishes get so big there. And I'll go on and on for as many hours as you want talking nerdy like that. A lot of the time, if not 99% of the time, it's how we fish the fly, not what we're throwing. Listen to all the previous podcasts about that. Most of the time, the first time you go out, you're going to be moving your fly too fast. 
Fish do not want to chase down a meal where they're going to burn energy. The lion does not chase down the hungry springbok. It goes for the injured one. They want the easy meal where they're going to get fat and not burn calories. That's why people drive to a drive-thru. They don't walk in because they're lazy. You don't want to burn calories and burn energy to get your food. That's why the drive-thru is invented. So we'll discuss what the fly is. I have a box of flies that go from nymphs, wets, attractors, terrestrials, streamers, everything that we can open and look at, and I can explain the sizes, the materials, and what they're made out of. I'll get into flies a bit later. Now let's do that now. So there's different types of flies. What are they made of to make a dry fly? So you have dries and wets. Dry flies are going to be made of hydrophobic materials, things that keep water away from them. So they're going to be made out of something like foam or mammalian hair that's hollow, deer, moose, elk, something that's going to float. It could be made out of a feather from a duck's butt that has specific oils on it to make it float. They're going to represent different things. I mentioned the crickets, grasshoppers. It could be, and you're going to have to learn some bugs. Caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies. Those are your big three. Terrestrials are the crickets and grasshoppers. Things that live on land and end up in the water versus things that are bored in the water and end up on land, which is most things you're going to be fishing are going to be things that live in the water, end up on land, go back to the water to lay eggs. Caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies. If it's born and spends most of its life on land and inadvertently ends up in the water, it's called a terrestrial. The term terrestrial was coined by the great fly fishers of middle part of last century in South Central Pennsylvania. And you might need to have something to dry your flies if they get too wet. So they might not always be made of something completely hydrophobic. Deer hair and other natural materials will eventually become waterlogged and you might need a paste or some kind of silica dry shaky stuff, you know, like what comes in your food. If you order beef jerky, that little silica packet, you might need some of that ground up just to suck the water. You can just take a t-shirt like made out of cotton and put your fly on that and it'll soak it all out. So dry flies are going to be above the water, fish looking up at them. Wet flies are going to be something hydrophilic. They're going to be below the surface. These can be broken down into streamers and nymphs. Streamers are going to represent more of bait fish, things that move through the water at a greater speed, whereas a nymph is going to be the larval stage of an insect. They can be made out of things that absorb water, like bunny rabbit hair or chicken feathers or rooster feathers or yarns or ostrich feathers or I'm just looking around my office right now strings. There are plenty of things that soak up water and they're going to allow this fly to sink down to where the organism that you're representing lives. They're going to represent caddisflies, mayflies, stonefly nymphs, or those flies swimming to the surface, emerging, known as emergers, to become adults, which is then you would represent them as a dry fly. And I'll go over what we're using and why and explain it and give you the whole biological breakdown of why something is feeding on that at that particular time that we're out. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. 
If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Okay, so that is flies. Let's talk about casting now. So the fly rod is a specifically highly designed tool to be used in a certain way. If you use it properly and efficiently, it does all the work for you and allows you to have a fun day, afternoon, evening, morning of fly casting where you are not hurting yourself, damaging the rod, or getting tired. If you do the work, the tool isn't going to work properly. And I'll explain that in a minute. So a fly rod is designed to do one thing, which is bend and throw your line. If you don't bend it properly, it's not going to throw your line properly, and it's just not going to work. There's the grip on the cork. I already mentioned that. Thumb on top. Joan Wolf, one of the most famous fly fishing instructors of all time, she says you should grab your cork like you are holding on to a piece of luggage and then put your thumb on top, or you are grabbing a screen porch door. Your fingers go underneath your thumb on top. Now, some people... If you follow George Daniel, fly fishing instructor at Penn State, he has a different grip, the three-point grip. I usually teach my clients first time out thumb on top because I want you to be able to push down with that thumb. And if you hear my rod make that noise now, you can hear the reel seat moving because there's no reel on here. Your trigger finger, which is going to be on your right hand, should always have the line underneath it. Trigger finger on the line. Your free hand should also be holding the line. You should always have at least one point of contact with your fly line, be it pinching it in your left hand if you're holding it with the right hand, the rod that is, or your index finger holding it to the cork. I'll say trigger finger. That's going to make your line taut. There's not going to be any loose line in it, which is going to interrupt the flow of energy down the rod. The casting motion should be like a karate chop. Just take your elbow down. And as Austin Powers would say, judo chop. That's it. It is a chopping motion. If you can karate chop, you can throw a fly line. Now do that with your index finger sticking out. You're pointing up at the sky. Now you're pointing directly in front of you. That is the exact motion that rod should be going in. Your rod points up. Your rod points in front of you. I don't want you using your wrist. If you use your wrist, you are not casting the way this rod is designed. If you have a sleeve, stick the rod butt in your sleeve. Put a rubber band on your wrist. Put the rod butt in there. If you got a Livestrong bracelet, put that on your wrist. Put the butt of the rod in there. That's going to prevent you from using your wrist. And why am I talking about using your wrist? Because you're not casting the lure or fly or bait conventional style. It's a completely different transfer of energy. The energy transfers from your elbow down to the end of the rod. This rod is an extension of your arm. My older clients, I'll ask if they remember the old Luke Skywalker action figure where the lightsaber came out of his arm. That's exactly what this rod should be like. You're going to have a regular length arm, and now you've got a nine-foot-long arm. You move the rod, rod moves the line, line moves the leader, leader moves the fly. Where you point your rod tip is where your fly should land, unless it's windy. If it's windy, you need to throw a couple feet in the opposite direction 
So the wind will blow it to where you want it to land. You have to overcorrect it. Now, if you move your wrist, it loses the transfer of energy. You're breaking the circuit of energy, the circuit of electricity. If your elbow is a battery and the tip of your fly rod or your fly is a light bulb and you use your wrist, you're breaking that circuit. The light bulb won't light up. If that rod is along your arm, maybe one inch off your wrist is okay. But once you bend that wrist and your rod is now perpendicular to your forearm and is parallel to your upper arm, you've lost all that energy transfer. And then your forward cast is going to be you doing the work because the rod was unable to bend. You're moving the rod too much, which doesn't allow it to do the efficiency it was designed for. Less is more. Whatever you think you need to cast, do it with half the energy and then cast and then do it again and do half the energy. If I can hear you casting, that's you doing the work, not the rod. A hard cast and a soft cast will deliver the fly the same exact distance unless you're being somebody that wants to show off and throw 80 feet a line. 30 feet, which is what we're mostly going to be casting, you can do the same cast as hard as you want and as soft as you want, and they're going to go the same distance. A tough guy cast goes the same distance as a granny cast. Longer rods are easier to cast. It has to do with a three, four, five triangle. Now, I consider myself a Fibonacci and not a Pythagorean for you math nerds. So you can go take your three, four, five triangles and study that. But your rod in your body is going to be one axis. The water is going to be another axis. And the line from the tip of your rod all the way to the water is the hypotenuse. So if you can lengthen, and my client George is seven feet tall. He's already got this going for him. The taller you are and the longer the rod, the longer you can cast. There are three casts I will teach on any basic starting lesson. And we did this with Andrew on the boat the other day, and he was doing fantastic. Work on the cast, then work on accuracy. The overhand cast or the Brad Pitt. Lift the rod, throw the line behind you, and stop the rod. Wait for that line to straighten out. You're going to feel the bend of the rod. The fly line is going to stop. Throw it forward. That's the overhand Brad Pitt cast. Lift your rod. Keep the rod in a straight line. Speed it up. Stop. Drop the rod. Lift, stop, drop. The roll cast. And you can learn to overhand cast like Brad Pitt. That's great. What I determine the quality of a caster is the roll cast. Learn to roll cast and you can fish anywhere. This is what separates amateurs from experienced. Slowly point the rod at the sky. Your fly line is going to drag back towards you. Keep the fly in the water. And then I'm going to say, no, the fly in the water. You took the fly out of the water. Nope, you did it wrong. Do it again. The fly stands in the water, and then you just drop the rod 90 degrees, like you're karate chopping. And that fly line will turn over itself and launch. The third one is the bow and arrow. If you have Amazon Prime, I suggest you watch. I don't suggest. I instruct you to watch the Joe Humphreys live the stream. You can watch that dude bow and arrow cast 30 feet under a tree to a little stream that's covered in a canopy of trees. It's absolutely amazing. Bow and arrow is you grab the fly with the hook point away from you, pull the fly back, your rod's going to bend back towards you, and then you're going to let go, and that potential energy now is going to throw that line forward. It's what you do when you're in tight quarters. Those are the basics of the rod, how to hold it, and the basics of the cast if you're the first time with me. 
once your fly gets out there, you're going to have to work it. Again, it's not what you throw, but how you move it. To move the fly, there are a couple ways. You can strip in the line. Your rod tip is facing down, and you've got the trigger finger on your right hand holding the line, and you're just going to loosely hold it, and you're going to pull the line through your index finger and drop it. Strip and drop. Strip and then pinch the cork. Strip, pinch the line of the cork. Strip. And now your fly is moving through the water. If you want to make that fly have more action, you can move your rod. Move the rod tip. It's flick and swish like Hermione. Move your rod like the second hand of a clock. Tick, tick, tick. Imagine there's a dragonfly on the end of your rod and you want to shake it off. That's the motion. These are the analogies I say when we're out with clients. So you can strip the fly in, you can twitch the rod, or you can cast and then just twitch your fly without stripping the line. That cork will have the line taut. You will be now be holding the cork and pinching the line to the cork with your right index finger because you're not casting right now. And you're just going to twitch the rod. Now, if you twitch that fly back to you, it's in perfect position to do a roll cast. So you can roll it out now. Twitch, 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 roll. That's kind of what we do when we're shad fishing. Another way you can impart action into your fly is look at the fly line, the first two feet of line coming out of the rod tip. I want you to just lift the rod and flick the rod tip. Make that line jump all around. And then watch how that goes down your fly line and eventually ends up on your fly. It's like you're sending sine waves down the fly line to the fly, and your fly is the terminal point of that line, so it's going to move. It's going to twitch back and forth. It's a fantastic way to entice a largemouth fish to bite, which is what Art and I discussed again in the last one. Now, setting the hook. A lot of people don't do it hard enough. They don't do it fast enough. Or they do it too hard and they throw the fish over the boat. I'm usually watching the fly. Not so much watching your back cast when we're fishing. If we're doing casting lessons, I'm watching your back cast. Mostly I'm watching your fly because I'm going to see things you won't. So if I yell set the hook or lift, jerk the rod back really fast. Imagine you got a 10-pound omelet and you're flipping it over your head. And you want to make sure you either are holding the line with your left hand or against the cork because that line needs to be taught to hook a fish. So you set the hook and your fly goes down and your line is taut and your rod is bent. Keep your rod hand still. Don't be moving that rod. Now you have two choices. Are you going to strip the fish in or are you going to reel it in? Now, if you reel it in, and this is when I show them that one revolution of that reel handle only pulls out maybe six inches of line. Whereas you can take that line and strip it. And then I say, no, not like you're stripping a fly in. Strip it to your left hip bone. And now my hand is going from six inches of pull to three feet of pull. And I can bring that fish in. Once you get the leader and fly line connection to the tip of your rod, lift the rod, bend it back, bring the fish in. It's pretty simple. Now, if your rod is bent, that fish is going to stay on. Don't drop the rod. Don't give them slack. We fish barbless flies. The only way they're going to come off is if they're slack, either from the fish jumping or you giving them slack line. Don't point your rod at the fish. That puts all the tension on the tippet of the leader. When you have the rod bent, that fish is now fighting the rod and putting the pressure on the rod. The same when you hook a tree or a rock, 
Don't be jerking back with the rod. Don't be pulling with the rod. You're putting tension on the tip of the rod. You're not going to break a rod over a fly. Strip some line out, get the line for the tip of the rod, and pull the line that way. If your fly breaks, that's better than your rod breaking. Now, if you're swinging your fly rod all around like you are, what's a good analogy? I had an analogy for this. What am I doing? Like you're a crazy person with a sword or I don't know. Like you got light sticks at a rave party. You don't want to be doing that. Every time you move that rod, and I keep hitting my LED lamp. Every time you're moving that rod, you are changing the angle of the hook in the fish's mouth. And if you move it to a certain angle, the fish is going to pop off. And I'll demonstrate this when we hook a fish, we'll pull up a small bluegill and I say, just grab the fly and turn your wrist to the right, 90 degrees. And that fly will turn, the fish will move a little bit and the fish will just drop back in the water because the hook was just at the angle where it falls out. Use smaller hooks when you can, less damage to the fish and you. Smash those barbs and just don't move that rod. And it's going to take a couple of times for you to get the instinct on when to set the hook. It really is an instinct. When you can visually see it, it's more fun when dry flies are on top. When they strike and the fly is below the surface, you have to watch your line to see if it straightens out. Or if you got a bobber, you watch to see your bobber go down. So landing fish. We're going to keep the leader out of the rod, barbless. We're going to try to have our hands wet. If I'm wearing gloves or my hands are dry, I'm going to try to handle the fish in general, minimal as possible least amount of possible, unless we're taking pictures of it. Try not to drop them in the boat. Try not to drop them on the rocks, on a dock. You want them to land in the water. So preferably, hand place them back in the water. Some fish you have to throw back in the water. Others you can just lower down. Sometimes at four-mile run, when we wade there, you drop a fish in and always go between your legs. It's strange, but they do that. Be gentle. Put them head first in, and just, there's a whole mucus coat on that fish. So try not to touch them. I have a whole podcast on fish slime. Look that up. Now let's finish this off with troubleshooting because you're going to be a novice angler and stuff's going to go wrong. You're going to be getting tangles on your fly. When your fly wraps around the tip of your rod, don't shake your fly rod all around. You're going to make the tangle worse. I always know when someone says, oh, I got a tangle. I know if they got a tangle and just stood there and waited for me versus if they had swinging the rod all around in circles trying to undo it. You're going to make it so much worse. I like to say I've always seen worse, but one guy was literally the worst where I just cut his whole leader off and we just cut the fly off and threw the leader in a garbage can behind us. That was a bad one. So things that are going to go wrong with you and your rod. You are using 80% more energy than you need to cast. So listen to your guide. You are moving way too much. If you're moving the boat, you're moving your legs. Don't lean into your cast. Just move your elbow down. Stop using your wrist. You're also going to be moving your rod too far behind your ear. Stop that rod literally above pointing at the sky, pointing at the satellite above you. Don't bring it behind your head. So I always know my wife might need extra time getting ready or my daughter. So if I say we need to be out the door at five o'clock, I know they're going to be ready at 5.30. So I tell them we need to be ready at 4.30. So I adjust for it. I overcompensate. So when I tell you to stop your rod directly overhead, it might go two or three inches behind your head, which is where the rod should be. But if I told you to stop your rod two to three inches behind your head, 
you're going to hit your shoulder with that cork on the way back and your rod tip's going to be hitting the water behind you. And that's just bad energy usage. So stop vertically, drop the rod down 90 degrees in front of you like a toll booth gate. Your power stroke is going to be when you deliver that fly and you need to give it a good little pop on the way down. Like you're hitting a hammer on the a nail on the head with a hammer, or you got a wet paintbrush and you're throwing paint at somebody. Your cork handle is going to be your paintbrush. That's your power stroke. Deliver that fly on the forward, not more muscle, more bend in the rod. Keep that trigger finger on your rod. Keep that trigger finger on your line, pull harder to get the line off your reel. And do again, again, do not let that leader enter your rod tip. Don't put your hook in your cork. You have a hook key for that, or you can wrap it between the foot of the reel and the rod, and then string it up to one of your stripping guides. Now, this is what's going to confuse you. Your line is going to get wrapped over the tip of your rod. So if you need to throw the line, there's a loop that's going to be dangling. I will either say left over right or right over left. So if you need to go left over right, the loops on the left side of your rod, you flip it over the right side, it comes off. If the loop is dangling on the right side of your rod, I'll say right over left. That's the tip of the rod. It might also be in the middle, same analogy. Now, if it's around the butt, this will happen where you're holding the rod with your right hand and the line goes around the reel and over between the cork and your first stripping guide. So you're gonna switch hands with the rod, rods in your left hand, take that line, bring it back under the reel, Grab it on your right. So if I say line over your tip, left or right, line over the butt, you have to switch hands and move them back. These are common mistakes that people are going to do the first time they go out fishing. So whether this is your first time picking up a fly rod ever, the first time in a decade, or you've been doing this for years, these are some of the things that I will discuss when I have a client for the first time. Each client gets a little bit of a different spiel. The flies are going to be different based on seasonality and what we're fishing for, but you can fill in the blanks with that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Please reference my website and social media for solo stoves. Once you get one, your neighbors are going to want to get one. It's that awesome. The UPS guy, when he delivered mine, said he didn't know what they were, but he delivers them all the time. Trust me on the solo stove. That's it for the fly fishing consultant podcast. I got to go make lunch for my kid now and then start prepping for my client tomorrow. Every Friday afternoon is prep for client time. That's it for now. Thank you for downloading. Please visit solostove.com for more information. Thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. 
For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.